Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of this child that we just sung about. And Father, we praise you that the child that is questioned about in the song is the child that we have come to know in your scriptures, is the child who was born to be the Savior of the world, born to be the Christ, the anointed King, born to be Lord over all. He, born in humble manger, live a humble life, die a humble death. Did so for us, for sinners. And we worship you, Lord. We give you thanks for the salvation that you have made possible through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of your Son. God, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. We praise you that we have reason to worship and to celebrate and to rejoice this morning. And God, we pray that you would now take your word and use it to encourage our hearts to continued faith, worship, and service to you. Lord, we pray that you increase our love for you this morning as we worship you in hearing your word. Thank you and praise you for your book that gives us your truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, if you have, if you have your Bibles, uh, it's a joy to open them up again to the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to the book of Hebrews with me this morning. On behalf of Cindy and our kids, we want to wish all of you a Merry Christmas. Uh, it's a good to have family, always good to have family with us, uh, you have family from afar, uh, and it's good to have a new, uh, some of you newer folks with us, and it's good to have some of you, uh, people we haven't seen in a while, but we're glad that you have joined us, and of course, we're glad to see our church family today with us. Thank God for all of us here together. Uh, it's a great to worship the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas Day. I love Christmas Day. I know growing up, I've told, I know you guys have heard this story uh, probably hundreds of times from me, but I love Christmas Day because it's a day that we gather together. It's one of those, and when, I was, when our family would, didn't really go to church much, uh, we would go, always go to church on Christmas and Easter. And so I'm sure some of you are here because it's Christmas and it's, well, it's not Easter, but you come back in Easter. No, just come back every day in between. But it's good to be here to worship the Lord because Christmas, when I, we used to do that as a kid, made me always think that, oh, somehow Christmas was special. There's something special about this day. There's something special about the birth of this child. And though I was a young kid, I didn't know anything about the birth, who that child was really. I just knew he was born. But there's something that stuck with me. And later on in my adult life, of course, I came to know who that Jesus was and that he was our Savior, who was born to die for our sins. Well, anyways, it's good to have you here with us, all of you. And so if you have your books, uh, you have the Bible, please open them and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Again, um, I, uh, before I forget, I'll try to remember to say it again at the end, but Sin uh, and I, we, we have a Christmas card, and we put it up on the liturgy table, so please be sure to grab one if you are into, you know, taking Christmas cards. All right, so please do that. And if not, then you can just leave it. Okay. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Anyways, <clears throat> let's, get the, let's get this. I almost forgot about this thing. All right. Let's try that one more time. There we go. Perfect. 
Well, of course, this morning, if you didn't know, we are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to be born of a virgin. He was born in the little town of Bethlehem, and where he was born in a manger, in a place in a feeding trough for animals. And that is an unusual thing for the Son of God to be born and placed in a feeding trough. One who was born to be our Savior, one to be the, born to be the King, one to be born the Lord, was found in a manger. And that's the astounding story. That was the sign that the angels told the, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the shepherds about, and they saw the sign, of course. And many, of course, when Jesus was born back 2,000 years ago, many didn't know. It was only just the shepherds initially who learned about the significance of the birth of the Savior. And the same may go for us in our world today. Many, many folks, many people are unaware. I know probably not most of us here, but many in the world are still unaware of the significance of the birth of this one we call Jesus Christ. Sure, yes, the most of the world celebrates Christmas, probably at least in some observance, some, uh, some outward uh, manifestation, whether decorations or shopping and giving gifts and all that stuff. But few, fewer and fewer know why he was born, much less the significance of who he was. Or even if they do know that, oh, he was born, that Jesus Christ was born on Christmas, they live as if that makes no difference in their lives. They live as if they didn't even know it at all. They go on living their lives as if he was never born. But we who gather together on this Sunday Christmas morning, we know, do we not? We remember, we understand why Jesus was born. Why he was was sent by God the Father. And what made him so significant. On this Christmas morning, I'd like to take us through, as we begin our series through Hebrews, the last time we went through, examined Hebrews, we had an overview of the book. This morning, we're going to look at the introduction to the book of Hebrews, the first four verses of, of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. And in this passage, I'd like to take us to simply walk through and see how the author of Hebrews shows us, reveals to us the significance of the Savior, the significance of our Lord's birth. Now, as you recall, Hebrews was written to predominantly professing Christians who were of Jewish descent. And they were being tempted because of the increasing persecution in the world to fall away from Jesus. They were tempted to fall away from Jesus and fall back to their Old Testament Judaism, to the rituals and practices of old. They were, in essence, forgetting that the one upon whom they had believed was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he is better than any old covenant rituals or practices or persons that they could ever turn back to. More important, better and greater than the priests and the prophets and the kings that had come in the past. For Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of all them all. And so this book is written to remind people that Jesus is better. And don't fall away from Jesus. Whatever you may be tempted, and it's written for our day as well, because in our world, though we may not be Christians of Jewish descent, there are a few of you here perhaps, but we are all at times in our lives tempted to fall away from Jesus. And when you fall away from Jesus, you are falling away from Jesus usually to something else, right? 
It's something that we find more attractive. Uh, it's like I could use my Sundays watching football. I remember that was a, a choice that I really wrestled with as a young Christian. I re- I'd rather watch football on Sunday mornings. It was what I used to be. Some of us would rather have our time for ourselves to do our own things. But this book reminds us that and reminds the recipients that Jesus is better than anything or anyone that you may be tempted to turn away to. And for these Jewish background of believers, they were tempted to turn back to the Old Covenant. So, but then as we look at these first four verses today, we're going to look at two points, two, little, two simple points. We learn two truths about Jesus Christ that exhort us to keep on believing, keep on worshiping, and keep on following him. So number one, as we look at this passage this morning, we keep on believing, worshiping, and following Jesus because number one, in this passage, we learn that Jesus Christ is the final word of God. Jesus Christ is the final word of God. Look at chapter uh, Hebrews chapter 1 with me, verse 1 and 2. It begins this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. I know recently I have had addressed this particular verse from one of our other sermons. And the point that was made from this passage is that our God is a God who speaks. Our God is a God who is not silent. He's not quiet. He's, he's not like the God of the deists. I know many of oh, you have heard it said that many of our uh, early uh, nation's fathers, or the early fathers of our nation, were deists. That is, they believed in a God but they didn't believe that that God really interacted or cared about the things in our world. They didn't believe that, uh, that God actually interacted or, or cared to intervene in the lives of mankind. He was simply almost ambivalent to what we do, and therefore we were ambivalent to him. But the Bible makes clear that God is not a God who is silent. And though there are people today who we may not call ourselves deists, but in effect we are. Many people you know say, oh, I believe in God. But if you look at their lives, they, they live as if it, there is no God. They live as that God doesn't really care how they live. I just believe in God and I just try to live a good life. You kind of just make up your own rules. The reality is that God cares how we live. And God has made known to us how, his, how he desires us to live. He makes himself known to us. He's not just a God who's way up there that doesn't care. He cares. And he cares especially for mankind. For mankind among all of creation is unique. For we are created in his image. In his image we're created. It makes mankind's life uniquely treasured and valuable because we're made in his image. The Bible makes clear that God who created the universe is a God who speaks, especially to mankind. God can be known, and he makes himself known, of course, through his word, through this book. That's why every week we we open up this book and we we look at what God has said in this book because we're reminding ourselves that God speaks to us, and God wants us to know him. He wants us to know his will. God, 
And when we look at this, these uh, first two verses, we see here two parallel statements. We, <coughs> we see that God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets. And that parallels that in God spoke in these last days to us in his Son. There's really two statements that are made there. God, first of all, spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. The first statement speaks really to God's revelation to the Israelites in the Old Testament, which we call the Old Testament of the Bible. God spoke in various prophets of old. He spoke to Adam. He spoke to Noah. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke to Moses and Joshua, to Samuel, to David, Solomon, to the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, scribes like Ezra, and so many others. What's more, we see not only that God speaks in, through the Old Testament, but we see that there's, the, there's an emphasis in this f- first statement. In our English, it starts with God, and you think that me, because that, in the beginning, the emphasis is on God, on the one who is speaking. But in the original languages, what it begins in the very beginning is, is it starts with in many portions and in many ways. It starts with this phrase, in many portions and in many ways, God spoke long ago to the fathers. The emphasis here in this passage is not on who was speaking, but how he spoke. It's the manner in which he spoke. God spoke in many portions in many ways. What that means is that God spoke to some in different portions of length of, of text. He spoke to some briefly, some just a simple handwriting on the wall. To some at great length, to the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. God spoke to Moses at great length. God spoke to his people also in various forms. He spoke to them through visions, through dreams, through symbols, written words, as well as direct speech. We see in the Old Testament, when we look at the Old Testament, you can't miss that God is a God who speaks. God is not silent. He has revealed himself. And so, in light of the fact that we, when we read the Old Testament, that God actively spoke to his people, revealing his will to them, It is surprising then that after the completion of the Old Testament, with the end of Malachi, for 400 years, God was silent. God didn't speak through any, give any revelation. He didn't speak to any, into his people. There was simply silence. But then the author introduced to the second part of the statement, God spoke long ago to the prophets in many portions, many ways, but in these last days, God has spoken again. In our latter days, God has spoken again, he says, but not in the prophets, not in many portions, not in many ways, but in one prophet, in one portion, and in one way, and that is in his son. God has spoken to his people again in his son. God sent his son to be the final word. There was no more clear and direct way that God could speak to mankind than send his son to speak to us. God spoke to us in his son. The Apostle John in the gospel, in his gospel, which we read in our call to worship, calls Jesus the word, in fact, right? You can't miss that. We read it. And I want to read those verses again to you, at least highlight a few things. And hopefully you're familiar with this, but in the beginning was the word. So at the very beginning, this is the beginning of creation, beginning in time, 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this Word is personified, he's, Jesus is personified as the Word here, and, and he, is, he was not only in the beginning, but he was with God, and he was God. The second, he's the second member of the Trinity. And verse 14, we skip down, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus having ascended back to heaven, he has explained him. That God sent his Son because, that another way, some of your translations have, he made him known. He made God known. He revealed God to us. Jesus came to reveal God to mankind. That is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the living word of God. And he took on flesh and was born 2,000 years ago. He had always existed from the beginning, from the beginning of time, before there was time, because he is the second person of the Trinity. But the amazing miracle is that 2,000 years ago, in time, he became flesh. He took on flesh and was born in the manger. And he, why did he do that? That he might come and reveal and explain God fully to us. Jesus is the final word of God. Now when we say final word of God, we can sometimes interpret that in terms of chronology. Jesus is obviously not the final word of God in the chronology because we have the rest of the New Testament that was written after his life, right? So not the final in that sense. But when I say Jesus is the final word of God, I'm speaking in terms of culmination. In culmination. All of God's Old Testament revelation pointed to Jesus Christ. They kept pointing to the Jesus who would come, this Messiah who would come, this anointed one who would come, the seed of the woman who would come, the prophet who would come, the king who would come. Everything was pointing to this one who would come, this servant who would come, the branch who would come, this king who would come, this savior who would come. And it's either there's a lot of different people or it's one person. Of course, you know it's one person. And then when, when he came, it was the climax of God's promises and when, with the writing of the New Testament, everything in the Gospels, everything in the Epistles, everything in Revelation points back to Jesus, points back to this one who came 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the culmination of God's Word. He's the climax, the pinnacle of God's revelation to mankind. And if you're new to the Christian faith, you're, you're kind of unfamiliar with Christian faith, you're wondering, why do we always read out of this book? And if you ever were like me, you just got to start reading Genesis, maybe New Year, you might start reading your Bible, and you want to understand God more, you're going to hit Exodus 20, and you're going to like, what? You're going to hit that. Everybody does. Because Exodus 20 starts the law, you know, and that's all those you know, strange laws that we kind of you know, wrestle. We don't know what to do with that stuff. But I'll give you a short clue. This book, if I was going to give you a summary of this book, what is this book about? This book is about Jesus Christ. He is the main character of this book. He is found in every page, in every word. He is the living word of God. All the promises are point to him. They are fulfilled in him. And everything that descri- describes the results of him coming to our world. His birth that we celebrate today marks the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to save us from the penalty of our sins. And when you study this book, 
It will draw you. It has, it, it's, it's not just for head knowledge. It, it will invite you, as I hope you will be invited today if you have not believed in Jesus. It will invite you and draw you to believe and respond in God's Son. And that you respond not only by believing in Him, but worshiping Him and following Him. What's more, if you're a Christian, what's, what's awesome about this book is that whenever you, you know, sometimes in Christian life we get bogged down by things that are happening in the world around us, circumstances, even things happening in church. But, and not that those things are not important, but if you would just simply lay those sides, things down aside for just a while and just focus on the one person of this book, I believe you're going to find the answer to, to the troubles, the sorrow you. Because your life, besides all that goes on in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it is ultimately bound up in the life of God's Son. Your past, present, and future are bound up in, what, in, in this Son and what He did for you and me on the cross and what He's going to do when, in the future for you and me. Your life is tied up with him, and it's only through a right relationship with him that you will find the peace that you're looking for in this life. Jesus is the final word of God. There's one more thing that needs to be explained before we move on to our next point. is that Jesus, we learn, is uniquely the living word of God because he is uniquely the son of God. Our English translation says that God spoke to us in these last days in his son. Some of yours may say by his son. But what that phrase is, it renders literally the phrase, uh, renders literally as in son. There's really no personal pronoun there. But it's in, and when there's the absence of any article before a noun in the Greek, it emphasizes the nature or quality of the noun. So in other words, God spoke to us in, to the one who in his nature is a son, is the, is the son of God. Whereas you and I as believers in Jesus Christ are adopted sons of God, we're all adopted into God's family, and angels, for, for, as another, and also in contrast, are also sometimes called sons of God, but they are created sons of God. Christ alone is the eternal son of God. There's no one else that is the eternal son of God like Jesus Christ. And the rest of this verse, the rest of this passage, verses 2 through 4, elaborate on the significance of this son. It begins to introduce to us really the theme of the whole book of Hebrews, and that is the supremacy of the son, the superiority of the son, the, how the son is better than all things that you may look to. And in fact, it will lead in the rest of this chapter eventually to how Jesus is better than the angels. People look to angels as ministering spirits on behalf of God, uh, on behalf of God, but Jesus, who comes as the servant, the the prophesied servant, is even greater than them. And how is he greater than them? Because he uniquely is the Son. He's the Son of God. There's so much said in, that's said in these verses. It's a very rich passage. It's a, full of Christology. But I want to summarize them into four statements for us. Four statements. Why is Jesus the supreme son of God? How is he the supreme son? What makes him better than anything else or anyone else? First of all, we learn that Jesus is the supreme son of God because he is the consummation 
of all things. He's the consummation of all things. And the end of verse 2, we see two statements, two parallel statements are made about Jesus. They're made about Jesus from opposite points of time. Okay? There two, there's two time references. First of all, it says, whom he appointed, he is, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's one statement. Through whom also he made the world. There are two, st- two events, two truths about Jesus. They're on opposite ends of the time, if you will, time timeline of history. On one end, of course, is that he is through whom also he made the world. That God, through Jesus, made the world. God created all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created all heavens and the earth. And it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, the whole world, by the agency of his son, through his son. God spoke, and his son brought it into being, created it out of nothing. So on one end, he is the maker of all things, but on the opposite end, he is the heir of all things. At the beginning of time, God, Jesus was there, and he was the maker of all things. And at the end of time, when the world comes to an end, when heaven and earth pass away, and there's a new heavens, a new earth, at the very end, there's going to be one person that's key, one person that's character, it's the main character, and it's going to be Jesus, who is the heir of all things. Now, this terminology, heir of all things, I think if you, you understand inheritance, it's the same idea. But this is a, a term that comes from a Jewish concept that's written to Jewish background people. So this whole idea about being an heir of things is a significant thing. We just recently studied, completed our study through Numbers, you recall? And what was the Israelites' hope for their inheritance? What was the average Israelites' hope? What did they hope to inherit? The land, Right? That's, why they, that's what they fought for. That's why they had to be numbered and counted. They had the promise of an eternal inheritance in the land of Canaan. That was their inheritance. But the Bible here says that Jesus is the heir of all things. The Israelites are heirs of the land, but Jesus is the heir of all the nations, all the lands, all the kingdoms of this earth. Right now, the world is in rebellion. Many of the world's of, nations of our world do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the heir of all things. But by his sovereign power, they had all mankind and all kingdoms have all come into being. And eventually, one day, when Jesus returns, all nations, all kingdoms, all lands will be inherited by Jesus. He will rule over them all. We see this promise in the Psalms, in the Messianic Psalm. In Psalm 2, uh, in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 8, which is a Messianic Psalm, a, a, a Psalm about Jesus, we see this exchange, this description of how the Messiah recounts what God the Father says to him. Okay? In Psalm 2, 7 to 8, we read this. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. So the the Messiah is saying this. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God is willing to give his son the very ends of the earth, the nations as his inheritance, his possession. Jesus is now seated and waiting. One day he will return to inherit all the nations and the kingdoms of this world. 
The Son of God is declared by the Father to be the heir of all things, the heir of all the earth, the heir of all the kingdoms, but every one, every person, everything in them. It all belongs to him. They were all made by him. See, he is the consummation of all things. That's why he is the unique Son of God. Secondly, though, Jesus is the supreme Son of God, not only because he's the consummation of all things, but secondly, he is also the visible glory of God. That's what makes him supreme, that he's the visible glory of God, that in him we see God. Verse 3 says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Last week, our brother Theo preached, and I really am thankful for his preaching uh, last, uh, this Last Christmas, it was not only a great Christmas message, preparing us for the, the celebration of the, the, the birth of Jesus, but the importance of tracing for us of the presence of God throughout the Old Testament. Did you? I really, I just love that whole part. It was just like excellent stuff. I was eating that up. Like a little nerdy for me, as a, but it's just good biblical theology. He was walking us through biblical theology. Now, sadly, of course, you know that the presence of God, also known as the glory of God, at some point in the history of Israel, departed from them. That there was a point where God no longer was present. Those of you that attend our Sunday school class that's going through Ezekiel, you should be learning about it. That the, holy, that the, the God's glory departs from the temple at some point because of the sins, the continued rebellion and sin of Israel. Earlier we had mentioned that for 400 years God had been silent. For 600 years, since the writing of, of Ezekiel, right before the, the fall of, of, of Jerusalem to Babylonian captivity, for 600 years, God's presence was no longer dwelling in the midst of Israel in the temple. You think about how significant that was. Ever since they came out of Egypt, ever since they came out of Egypt, God had been with them in the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, Eventually in the tabernacle, then eventually in, eventually into the temple, and then he wasn't with them. His presence was gone, and for the people of God, Israel, who was priding themselves on this unique relationship that they had with God the Father, it was a it was a big blow. He was silent, and he was not present. Yet, the glory of God that had departed from Israel because of their sin returned on the very night of our Savior's birth. For in a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger in Bethlehem, the glory of God, our Savior Christ the Lord, was born. In the Old Testament, you read stories about how no one can look upon the, directly upon the glory of God. Even Moses couldn't. He had to be hid in a cleft of the rock so he could only see the, the back part of God's glory as it passed by. And thus, often God's glory was veiled in a cloud, in a fire, in a burning bush. But in Jesus, we learn that the glory of God was revealed, still veiled, veiled in flesh, as the terminology is often put, but to look upon him was to see the glory of God. John in John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh, we read that earlier, and dwelt among us. He was with us again. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, in, when Jesus came back, God's 
presence. God's, not only God's word came back to them, but so did God's presence and God's glory. And then whenever Israel, when, as they looked at Jesus, if they would accept it, whenever they saw Jesus, they saw God the Father. Jesus said, would say in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So that's why Jesus is the supreme son of God, because he alone, he reveals the glory of God to mankind. Thirdly, not only is he the consummation of all things and the visible glory of God, but he's the sustainer of all things. And we're going to touch on this briefly, but I love this one just from its application. There's a little brief statement that says, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus upholds all things. He holds things together by the word of his power, by simply his word. Not only did he create all things in eternity in back in eternity past or back in the beginning of time, but we learn here that he also upholds all things by his word. He holds the world, upholds it until he brings it to completion, until whatever he has designed it to do is done. Jesus does all this by the word of his power, simply by decreeing it. Just like God the Father created the world by his decree, so the Son of God upholds the world by his decree as well. He holds every aspect of every atom, every cell of our being. None of our, we know that cells eventually decay, but then but Jesus holds us together until he is done and complete with what he has designed our lives to do. And I love this idea that he sustains us. He holds us together. Because a lot of times in our world, we figuratively feel that everything is falling apart. Well, we are literally falling apart. My hair cells are falling out a lot these days. And among other things. We are falling apart. And we know in our world things fall apart too, do they not? Relationships fall apart. Our bodies fall apart. Our world tends to fall. Our jobs fall apart. Our families sometimes fall apart. And these are painful things when they come to pass in our lives. And all of us experience it because we live in a fallen world. But if when your world is falling apart, remember that Jesus is the sustainer of all things. And he upholds you. And he will hold you together. He will hold you as long as you need, as long as he deems you need to you complete the work and purpose that he's intended for you. He'll sustain you to the end. And that is a comfort for all of us. Fourthly and lastly, Jesus is the supreme son of God because he is ultimately the once for all savior. The last part of verse three reads, when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This phrase, particularly when he had made purification of sins, is a reference to the Old Testament rituals, Old Testament practices. It's an allusion to the Levitical priesthood, and especially the priests that would have to offer sacrifices twice a day on behalf of Israel, that they would help people to offer up their sacrifices to God for their sins, for their guilt. And then especially it would remind us of the sacrifice that the high priest would have to make year after year, entering into the most holy of holy place to offer sacrifice for the whole nation. And yet, 
That the priest would have to keep doing that day after day. The high priest would have to keep doing that year after year. Even when the high priest died, there would be another high priest that would come, and he would then begin offering up the same day of atonement offerings year after year after year. But Jesus came, and he came to be the ultimate high priest. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, this Wonderful truth. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, those who are set apart and to be and saved. Jesus, by offering one offering, not a not any animal, not a bull, not a goat, not a sheep, not a lamb, he offered himself, for he is the lamb. He offered up himself on the cross, and he did so once, and it was for all people of all time who would believe upon him, who would be sanctified and saved. Jesus, through the offering of his life on the cross, once and for all atoned for our sins. And to emphasize that there's nothing else for him to do in saving us, he didn't have to come back the next year and and die again. He didn't, right? It show, the scriptures here say that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he sat down, he was done. He was finished. In fact, on the cross, he said, it is finished. This is a wonderful thing. It's a great job. When you, when you come home from work or you had a long, tired day, what do you like to do? Well, I don't know what you do, but I like to just sit. Okay, I just like to sit down. But in my family, when I sit down, when I get home, and my wife tries to give me a little break, but shortly after... I got to get up because, well, there's things to do. And I got a lot of kids that are also going to call up on me and say, Daddy, I need my toy fixed. Daddy, can you play with me? Daddy, can you read a book for me? And so I have to get up. Why? Because, and I'm happy to do so because my work is not done. I'm not finished. I'm not going to stay seated forever because my work is still to be done and your work as well. Whatever God's roles he's placed you in this world, you have a work to do. That's why, you know, when you miss sitting down, well, you got still work to do. But Jesus sat down. He is done. His work of salvation is finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. You and I don't have to do anything else to work and earn our salvation. That's the beauty of the gospel. I know sometimes it's hard to believe that God could forgive us for all our sins. But God sent his perfect one and only son, and he nailed them to the cross. The perfect son of God, the perfect God-man died. In our place. He didn't deserve to die, but he died because he was God. He died an infinite death that none of us could pay, and he proved that he fulfilled, fully paid it by rising from the dead. There's nothing else that needs to be paid. It's all been paid. There's ne- therefore now no condemnation for us as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, for they are paid in full by our ultimate high priest. Our responsibility then? is to keep on trusting in him, to keep on depending on him. Not to earn our salvation, but to depend on him out of love to live the lives he wants us to live. Jesus is the supreme son of God because he is all these things that no one else is. He is the consummation of all things. He is the visible glory of God. He is the sustainer of all things. And he is the once for all savior of mankind. 
And therefore, there is no one greater than him. No one more supreme than him. He is the greatest of all. He's the greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets, the priests, the kings of old. He's greater than anything else that you may think will bring joy and happiness and life to you. For Jesus is the supreme son of God. And as we wrap up, Jesus is not only the supreme son of God, but he is the final word of God. And these two truths put together remind us of the significance of why he was born 2,000 years ago. He came to bring us God's truths, the gospel. He came to tell us of how we can have a right relationship with God. And he showed us God. And he showed us that he is the son of God by all that he does. Now, it's great to know these truths. I think all of us would have said, yeah, I knew that. That's good. I, I knew that. But the question for all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, what good is it to know these things if we do not live according to them? And here's a question I want to leave with you is, how is your life different because Jesus is born? How is your life different because Jesus is born? How does that impact your day-to-day life that Jesus is born? Because Jesus came into our world. It should make a difference. Perhaps it might make a difference in these three ways that we talked about in our introduction. That it should affect whom we trust. First of all, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ before, today is a great day to put your trust in Jesus Christ. That you can, don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. God did everything for you. He's giving you a gift. If I came down right now and offered you a gift The only way that it becomes your gift is if you receive it from me. If you don't receive it from me, I'll just take it home. You need to receive it. And you receive it through believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Will you trust in him for your salvation and for your life? He died for you. And secondly then, for those of us who already are trusting in him, we keep on trusting him, keep on believing in him. But also, are we worshiping him? Are we worshiping him particularly as the object of our greatest affection? You know, today is Christmas Day, and so we, we give a lot of gifts. And I always hope for and pray for my, our own children that as we give them gifts and as they, they find these great joys, great treasures of this that we give to them of a material nature, that we would not forget to remind them and they would not forget in their hearts that the greatest gift they've already, they are, have already, has already been given And that's the gift of Jesus Christ. That they would truly treasure him above all the things that they have. And I pray that that would be true of all of us. Thirdly, are you following Christ's life? Are you following his life and teaching? Not to earn our salvation again, but because we love him. And we know that our lives belong to him because he died for us. We who know... We who understand, we who remember the truth and the significance of the birth of Christ, let us keep believing, keep worshiping, and keep following him, right? That's that's what God calls us to do. Let us be found faithful to worship and adore him, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord who was born. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truths and we thank you for the gift of your Son. 
Thank you that he is the fi- your final word and, and that he is your supreme son. Because of who he is, Lord, his birth and life and death and resurrection are all that much more significant because he fulfilled that which you promised. A salvation for mankind that is freely offered, freely received through faith in your son. God, we thank you for your gift, your great gift of love. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that if any here don't know Jesus, that today may be a day of salvation for them. And Lord, we thank you for bringing all of us here together and that you would fill our hearts with a desire to worship and adore you and to continually believe, worship, and follow after you because Jesus is our greatest treasure. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.